brothers and sisters, I ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, as we will be looking at Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 to 10. Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 to 10. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, last week we identified uh, the recipients of this letter as being the saints who were living in uh, the southern part of Galatia. The southern part of of Asia Minor. uh, Who belonged to those uh, newly formed churches that Paul had planted in his first missionary journey, which is why Paul can say he's so astonished that they are now right, departing the faith, right, following after a, another gospel. It's that missionary journey of Paul that we read about in Acts chapter 14 and verse 1, where Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium and they're preaching the gospel and we're told that both Jew and Gentile hear the word proclaimed and believe it. Right? Many of them believe it. From there, in verses 11 to 13, we are told that they traveled into Lystra, likewise proclaiming the gospel. In verse 21, from Lystra, they go to Derby, proclaim the gospel again. And we're told that, again, many disciples were made through the proclamation of that gospel that Paul proclaimed. And after he went to Derby, we're told he goes back then to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the churches that he had established and planted, in order that he might strengthen their souls, we're told, encouraging them to continue on in the faith. But that very thing that he was encouraging them to do, to to press on in the faith, is the one thing that we see in our text today they have been failing to do. But this is why Paul writes so, so passionately to them. This is why Paul is writing so urgently to them. Because he knows what they heard. He knows what they received. He knows what they said they believed. Because it came from his very own lips. And as we heard last week, what he proclaimed was not of himself. The gospel he proclaimed was not of human origin, but of divine origin. It was a gospel given to him by God to declare in the midst of the people. And when Paul was with them, what happened? They joyously received it. And so now he's stunned, isn't he? He's amazed at this this great reversal that's taken shape. 
But we need to understand that perhaps for the, the saints, perhaps for these new converts, it wasn't so great of a reversal that was occurring. Certainly many of them are thinking to themselves, well, where does Christianity kind of come out of? It comes out of Judaism, doesn't it? Right? Jesus was a Jew. The early church right, was, was Jewish in terms of its, its numbers. These were men who were once Jews who now become Christians. And so when you have Jewish Christian teachers coming into the church who are saying, we need to add these things, these aspects or parts of Judaism to Christianity, to them it didn't seem maybe like that big of a deal. It didn't seem like they were doing something that, that, that wrong. They didn't understand that what they were doing would, would undo the very profession of faith that they made when Paul was with them. But brothers and sisters, isn't this often the case? When a church preaches another gospel, does it think to itself that it's doing that? When someone goes to a church that has embraced another gospel, do they believe that that's what they're doing? No, that's not what they believe they're doing. But knowing that this is what was taking place in, in Galatia, uh, knowing that this is what's been occurring throughout all of church history, seeing that it still occurs today, it demonstrates really two things for us at the outset, doesn't it? The first thing that it demonstrates for us is this, is that oftentimes, many times, most times even, those who would undo the faith of the saints are the ones who will sit amongst the saints. Right? The greatest agitators of the gospel are oftentimes those within the church themselves. Now, the second thing, though, that it demonstrates to us is not then, well, we just don't go to church. Right? But rather, what it demonstrates for us is that we need to be careful. Right? We need to be cautious about where it is we, we plant ourselves in a church. Not that we, we go somewhere where the, the minister is popular. You know, by men's standards, he's a good minister. You know, he's a good order. He, he fashions sermons well. No, rather, brothers and sisters, we need to go to a place that we can close our eyes because we don't even care who's in the pulpit. It doesn't matter. And be able to say to ourselves, as the Word of God is proclaimed, yes, I hear the voice of my Savior speak. Too many are wooed to this church or that church by who they can tell their friends their pastor is. But a true ambassador of the Word who understands His calling and who has a right estimation of Himself which ought to be low and a high estimation of God strives to make you forget about them and think only about Christ in the Word. That's the minister's concern. Right, a true ambassador of the Word wants to sink into the background as the Word of God is proclaimed. Simply directing your attention to Him. Because it's He who you've come to fellowship with today. It is He that speaks to you when you gather. Right? It is Christ speaking to you. A true ambassador of the Word is not someone who, who wants to show up every week with a, with a new and, and hip message. 
Something that's maybe never been heard before. Right? But a true ambassador of the Word wants to come week in and week out relying on an old message. Right? One that doesn't originate with Him, but rather originates in the Word of God. Right? A true minister that's concerned with the glory of God and the building up of God's church knows that what is important is not the messenger, but rather the message. The message is what's important. This is why Paul is writing, isn't it? Because Paul understands that the message is important, and it's that message that Paul declared to the saints that is now being perverted and distorted by these Jewish teachers who have followed in behind him after he has planted and left these churches. And now the, the saints in these churches are ignorant of what has happened. So Paul is, is writing now to, to make known to them what is occurring. Look with me at verses 6 and 7, please. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here is our first point then. Uh, brothers and sisters, this morning, which we'll call the, the Galatian problem identified. The Galatian problem identified. Now, as we read verses 6 and 7, we see that, that Paul does what? Paul places the blame on two groups of people, really, doesn't he? Right? The first group of people that he places the blame on are the saints in Galatia. Right? The saints who belong to these churches. He says, I'm astonished, or I marvel." And how quickly you can desert Him who called you into the grace of Christ by turning to another gospel. Right? He's saying, I, I marvel at how you can forsake God so quickly. Because, brothers and sisters, isn't it, isn't it God who calls us into the grace of Christ? It's God who does that. Yes, the minister externally proclaims the Word. Right? But it's God who does the internal work in the heart of the saint. Right? Without God's internal calling, the external call is of no effect. And this was true of the prophet in the Old Testament, of the apostle in the New Testament, and of ministers today. None of us, the prophet, the apostle, the, the pastor today, are adequate to do this thing, to, to draw men's heart to Christ. God alone is the, is the drawer of the heart to Christ. And Scripture tells us this, doesn't it? Think of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We are told that those God predestined, He also called. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we need to understand that the minister is just an instrument Right, who externally proclaims the Word that God uses to communicate His message. But the one who does the internal operation upon the heart is God and God alone. Now, one thing that we need to see then is that as we read these first two verses, that Paul is not saying, he is not saying that these men have already deserted God. And we know that based on the language he uses here. Uh, that, that word for deserting is a, is a present 
tense verb. Which means that what Paul is communicating here is that, is that they are, they are now deserting. Or we might say they are in the process of deserting God. And so this is why Paul then writes, right, to, to stop them in their tracks so that they would not desert God. Right? Because he knows what will become of them. He knows what will happen if they continue in their path. And just think about that word deserter as well. We're all familiar with that term. Oftentimes, isn't it used uh, of, of people in the military who kind of uh, flee, go, they call AWOL? And what does that mean when they are called a deserter? Right? It means that they have run away. They've become a, a fugitive of sorts, haven't they? Right? They've defected. And this is what Paul is saying the saints in Galatia are doing by turning to this other gospel. Also, another thing that I want us to to take notice of in these first two verses is that Paul is not legitimizing the Judaizers' message by calling it a different gospel. Okay, He's not legitimizing that message. He's not saying that there are two or more gospels and that his gospel is just the better gospel and so his gospel is the one that they ought to listen to. There are many things in life that are like that, aren't there? But not the gospel. I mean, I think about, take for example, pizza. Some people love pepperoni pizza. Some people love sausage pizza. Some people love cheese pizza. I I don't understand those people, but they, they love cheese pizza. But what are they all, brothers and sisters? They're all pizza. And so, is one better than the other? It's subjective, isn't it? It's a matter of of the individual's preference. But we need to see such is not the case with the Gospel. right? He's saying different Gospel in the sense that it comes under the, the disguise of a Gospel. That it comes draped in the language of a Gospel. That it sounds very close to the Gospel. But we need to see it's only Gospel in name only. Right? There's no Gospel at all. Right, truly, is no gospel. There's only one gospel, and no man's teaching can rival the true gospel. Right, no man's teaching can compete with the true gospel. Right, there is one and one gospel alone, and we read about that last week, didn't we? In verse four, who gave himself, that is Jesus Christ, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Right? That's the gospel that Paul declared. And Paul makes us even more aware of the fact that the, this different gospel he's talking about isn't a real gospel or another gospel when he says in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. And so here's in that second group that he's addressing. Right? Not only the saints in, in Galatia, but he's also here addressing the Judaizers, right? Those, those Jewish Christians who have come into the church. And what does Paul say that they've done by, by teaching this other gospel that is no gospel at all? What does he say? He says that they've troubled the saints through the distortion of the gospel. Well, what were they teaching that troubled the saints? Well, the teaching was this. Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. 
They were teaching Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. Now, even the Judaizers themselves probably did not think that that was that big of a deal to teach that. But they did see it as a significant modification to the Gospel. They believed this was an important part of the Gospel that Paul left out that we must now put back into the picture. That we must, we must add to what Paul has already told you. Because they're thinking to themselves, if, if you are to be a member of the covenant with God, and if you are to receive the, the blessings and the promises of God's covenant, then you must submit to these things. Brothers and sisters, though, isn't this what we see going on here? Very much so something that we see going on even in churches today. Right? We see what's going on here on the rise, in fact, in churches all around us. And that is this, that too often, as ministers step into the pulpit to proclaim God's Word, they do not understand the law-gospel distinction. Right? They don't understand the law-gospel distinction. This is what I mean. Right? Scripture tells us, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. And yet men stand in the pulpit and they don't understand that. And so what do you think happens when you mingle the law with the Gospel? You get a bunch of troubled consciences, don't you? People who don't know, should I walk in hope before the Lord or fear? This is why Martin Luther said this, the law worketh sorrow. The Gospel worketh peace. And so no wonder why these saints are troubled by what is being taught. Because now they're being told that, that human efforts and human merits are necessary on top of what Christ has already done. Right? The, the, the Gospel that the Judaizers are teaching says this, that not only the works of Christ, but your works are the cause of your own justification. Right? That is what they are declaring. So that now when the saints are asked, how am I made right with God? Uh, how is my sin forgiven? How is salvation brought to my soul? They must answer, Christ and myself. Right? Christ and myself. And so surely, many began to, to doubt their salvation here in Galatia. That's what happens though when you mix the law and the Gospel. You stop looking entirely to Christ for eternal life. And you start putting pressure on yourself to do your part. Right? If you've ever sat under that kind of preaching, you know exactly what it does to you. If you've ever sat under preaching that proclaims the law as if it were Gospel, what does that do to you when you walk out? It does not cause you to rejoice in God, does it? In what He has done for you in Christ. It doesn't do that at all. Rather, it crushes you, doesn't it? You walk out of church scared and afraid and frightened, understanding that you do not stack up to what has just been proclaimed. And then the focus shifts away from Christ and understanding He has done it all. And your eyes no longer look upward to Him, but downward and inward, and you are concerned about maintaining your own salvation. This is why, brothers and sisters, that there is only one Gospel that is the good news. Right? There is only one. That's what Gospel means, right? Good news. 
And so let us see that the, the Judaizers' gospel is not good news. That's not good news they declare, but rather it is what? It's bad news. It's bad news. The Gospel says all has been done. Everything has been completed. It is finished. Right? That is the good news. That's what causes us to rejoice and to rest and to trust in the Lord. To simply look to Christ for His merits and His efforts and, and stop our own working. Right? That's, that's a message of good news, isn't it? But what the Judaizers are teaching is that not all is done yet. Right? There is still more that has to happen. And that is not good news at all. This is why William Perkins said this, that grace admits no partner. Grace admits no partner. And thanks be to God that grace admits no partner. That, that God's grace doesn't need your supplement. Right? That God's grace is sufficient. That God's grace is enough. It's sad that I say this, but I think in many pulpits today, the devil is standing up there. The devil is standing up, influencing men to distort the preaching of the Gospel. Remember that the devil makes himself to appear as an angel of light. And he does so with his lies. Right? He makes his lies seem to be so true. Right? He makes his, his lies seem to be believable. He makes his lies appear to be light from God. But he does that so that you would not know or be awakened to the fact that he's trying to kill you with those lies. This is why the false gospel is all, always mixes truth with lie, doesn't it? If it's just all lie, the, the meekest of us would be able to understand and, and, and spot it out, wouldn't we? The little children would be able to know that that's not the Gospel. And so he mixes truth with the lie. Right? He, wants it to, he wants the false Gospel to look as close as it can to the real thing. Right? That's what, what good counterfeiters do, don't they? If someone wanted to counterfeit a, a $100 bill, they wouldn't open the game of Monopoly, would they? And try to copy a, a pink $100 bill from the game, would they? No, they're going to look to a real $100 bill and they're going to try to, to in every detail, copy it almost exactly. Right? That's where they find their success. Right? That's where the false teachers find their success. That's where the devil finds his success in making it appear to be almost the real thing. But you know how we can know that it's not? The fact that it brings sorrow. The fact that it troubles the consciences of the saints ought to make the antennas go straight up into the sky. It ought to be a red flag right, right before their eyes. Because what does Jesus say that the Gospel will do? That He preaches. In John chapter 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's what the Gospel does. Right? That's what the Gospel does. The true Gospel lifts that burden off your back. Right? The, the true Gospel speaks peace into your hearts. The true Gospel doesn't trouble the conscience, but rather it quiets the conscience. 
Right? The true Gospel reveals the love of Christ towards you. And when you understand Christ's love for you, how can you not help but be filled with joy? Right? We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the true Gospel, that one and only true Gospel, does not make us sad, but rather it makes us glad. Right? The Gospel is good news. It makes glad. And it's the joy and gladness of these Galatians' salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is now being shaken up by the Judaizers' teaching. And so, how does Paul respond? Well, look at verses 8 and 9 with me, please. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This leads us to our our second point then, which is the anathema directed towards false teachers. The anathema directed towards false teachers. Now one thing that we read here um, is that Paul uses extremely strong language here, doesn't he? He uses strong language, but I also want us to see that he does so thoughtfully. Not rashly, but thoughtfully. Right? He has taken time to consider it. Being moved by the Holy Spirit. And he writes it down and records it for all to see and hear. And that's why he records it two times over. Because he does not think about this and write it down rashly, but rather he has considered it thoughtfully. And so he puts pen to paper here. And he knows exactly what he's saying. But what Paul is doing here in verses 8 and 9, is not something that dissimilar to what we see oftentimes in the, in the Psalms, do we? If you think about the Psalms, they have those things called what? Imprecatory Psalms, right? What are our imprecatory Psalms? Those are Psalms in which the psalmist prays that God would curse his own, his enemies. Right? That's what a, an imprecatory Psalm is. And this sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? Where Paul prays, essentially, for the, the cursing of God upon the false teachers who would declare a false gospel. But I want us to see the extent of the cursing. And he says, it goes to anybody. I don't care what position you are in. Whether you be Paul, whether you be an angel or anyone, if you distort the gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. This ought to show us, though, how, how truly serious we ought to take the Scriptures, and especially the Gospel. Right? How truly careful we ought to be when we declare the Gospel to others because we see the penalty for toying with it. That word accursed is used by Paul elsewhere. In Romans chapter 9, flip over with me there please if you would. Uh, Romans chapter 9. Just help us to understand the meaning of this word as we read. Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. There's that word. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, 
according to the flesh. And so we see that same word accursed here in our text. Right? Paul is saying then that anyone who preaches another gospel is to be eternally condemned. That if you preach another gospel, you are a, a son of perdition. That you are something that is to be devoted to destruction. Right? Under the wrath of God. Ultimately, though, what Paul declares is not his own desire, but he's declaring God's just sentence that, that he says will happen to the impenitent false teacher for their sin of distorting the gospel because not only do they shut themselves out from the kingdom of God, but they do so much great evil and damage in proclaiming the word and, and shutting others out of it as well. But I want us to see something as we see Paul's response, and that is this, that in the world we live in today, uh, they, they preach tolerance, don't they? For most everything. Right? That we are to be tolerant. But I want us to see what Paul teaches us, and that is this, that when it comes to the Gospel, brothers and sisters, we are to be intolerant to anything that would harm or injure it. Right? We are to be intolerant to anything that would harm the Gospel. Right, today we live in a day and age that, that tells us that we are to value the opinions and the beliefs of, of every single person. And hasn't that mentality trickled down into the churches? So much so that, that many churches today are, are indifferent with matters of faith. And because churches are like that, isn't it true then that the members who go to those churches oftentimes are guilty of the very same thing? And so these churches and these individuals speak and act as if it doesn't matter what one believes about God or it, it doesn't matter what faith you belong to because ultimately don't all roads lead to the same God. Right? It is these same people who likewise speak and act as if you can believe Jesus to be anyone that you want Him to be according to your own individual personal interpretation of the Bible. People who speak and act as if we can believe the Gospel to be anything that we desire it to be. But we must see, brothers and sisters, that although that attitude is often couched in language of love, that to do such a thing is the opposite of, of love, isn't it? Right? It's false love. It's false charity. And in fact, it's hatred of one's brother. Right? Because true love speaks truth at all times. Right? That's what we just read about in the, in the ninth commandment. Right? True love wants to see sinners saved. And so you speak up rather than allowing them to continue to persist in the doctrines of demons just because you don't want to offend somebody by telling them they're wrong or that their beliefs are, are soul damning and, and soul destroying. Now at the same time though, I think that although many Christians are motivated by love to tell others these things, that what is also true is that oftentimes Christians lack love in how they communicate those things to sinners. That oftentimes, even though the motivation is love, you can hurt your cause by the manner in which we deliver that. Brothers and sisters, we should not get excited to tell people that they are going to hell. That should not be something that, that brings us joy, that we like to scream and shout at people. 
Right? That should not be the case. We ought to exhibit true love, not only in our motivation, though, to, to tell people about the Gospel and to warn them about hell, but likewise, we need to see that we need to be uh, people who, who love sinners in the manner in which we deliver the message as well. This is what one uh, renowned Reformed theologian, Dr. Ian Hamilton, points out actually in his sermon uh, on this particular passage. Uh, he says this, think back to Paul in Romans 9. Right, The passage we just read. Is Paul excited? Does he find joy and gladness in telling his kinsmen after the flesh that they're going to hell? That they will be eternally condemned apart from Christ? No, what does he say? He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. Right? He cares for them and it comes out in the words that he speaks. Think likewise about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think about Luke chapter 13 and His lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Right? Christ sheds tears for His kinsmen after the flesh because He understands what will happen to those who have rejected the Gospel. Right? This is why Ian Hamilton says that when we preach hell, we must preach hell to sinners with tears. Understanding what will become of those who reject Christ. And so with tears, brothers and sisters, we, we must tell lost souls about the Gospel. Right? With tears, we must tell the ungodly about what Christ has done. How He has paid that hellish penalty with tears in His own eyes as they trickle down His face for anyone who would come to Him by faith and believe in His name. But that's why it's so dangerous to, to preach anything else other than the one true Gospel, because this Gospel alone saves. This is why we cannot get the Gospel wrong. Every other Gospel, brothers and sisters, is no Gospel at all. And all it does is further damn men to the pits of hell. And this is why then the penalty is so great. Because they were doing what Paul says, or what Paul calls uh, adding to the Gospel, really. And what were they adding to the Gospel? Well, that which he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which he calls the ministry of death and condemnation, which says, do this and live. They were adding that to the ministry of the Spirit and righteousness, which is the Gospel. And so they were distorting it. And they were driving men away, away from the gates of heaven into the gates of hell. And it's this very same warning that... Paul gives it, Jesus gives, doesn't he, in his own earthly ministry? Think back to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. There Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Right? What Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is that false teachers deserve the severest of all penalties because the sin is so great. Right? They are taking the Gospel that has been given to make alive and they are turning it into an instrument of death. The Gospel here is being proclaimed as, a, as not a Gospel of life, but a Gospel of death. As the Judaizers are denying that Christ's works on our behalf is enough. And if Christ's works, brothers and sisters, aren't enough, whose works will be? Right? Whose works will be? Without Christ, we are all lost 
and without hope. And so people need to come under the conviction that when they proclaim these sorts of messages, and when people believe these sorts of things, they need to come under the conviction that Christ profits them not. That Christ profits them not. When you begin to mix law with gospel, the death and resurrection and life and obedience and righteousness of Christ are of no benefit to you. And this is why Paul writes. Because Paul knows that if you do not have the one true gospel, that brothers and sisters, you have nothing at all. You have nothing at all. This is why Paul points this out in Galatians chapter 5. Flip over in your Bibles there. This is the exact same thing he teaches them in Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 2 with me there. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, Paul says if, if even in the slightest you want to be judged according to your own works, if you want your works to be included in how God looks upon you, then you have now just thrown yourself under the entirety of the law. You are back under its burden, back under its curse. That's what Paul is saying. We need to understand that you cannot mix the works of one covenant with the grace of another. Right? You cannot mix the old covenant and the mediator of the old covenant with the new covenant and the mediator of that better covenant. Right? We cannot do it. And yet, one reason people preach in such a manner is because they want to be people pleasers, don't they? Right? People who step up in the pulpit oftentimes understand that, that those who sit in the pew if they are going to be saved, want to have a hand in it, don't they? They know that people want to come to church and be given a five or ten step plan that they can now go out and execute for themselves. That they can check the boxes and feel like they've accomplished something that their neighbor has not. Which is why they are saved and their neighbor is not. But boy, does man like to boast in the flesh, don't they? But what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This is why Paul then says this in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This leads us to our third and our final point this morning, which is the approval sought. The approval sought. Martin Luther said this, This is not preaching that gains favor from men and the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and intolerable than hearing its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. He's right, isn't he? But at the same time, isn't it also true that for many people, they live under the, the assumption 
that if I am friends with the world, that if the world does love me, if I don't ruffle any feathers and everything and everybody wants to be my friend, then God must be happy with me as well. If the world is happy with me, God is happy with me. Right? Not understanding that, that the world loves you and the world is happy with you because you're not of God, but you're just like it. Doing and affirming and accepting all of the things that God despises. Right? We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that we, we, cannot, we cannot judge our standing with God by our standing with men. We can't judge our standing with God by our standing with men because they have different standards, don't they? This world does not have the mind of God. It does not value the righteousness of God. This world, what it esteems, is not at all what God loves or approves of, is it? This is why though Paul is hated. Paul is hated because he does not seek the approval of the world. He does not try to be friends with the world. He does not try to find acceptance with the Judaizers, his kinsmen after the flesh. But instead, he opposes them to their face. And what happens to him as a result? In Acts chapter 13, verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They faced persecution, did they not? In Acts chapter 14, verse 5, that as Paul is preaching that gospel in Iconium, we are told that the Jews and Gentiles, along with rulers, were devising a plan to mistreat them and to stone them. This is why Luther says this as well. For if we denounce men in all their efforts... It is inevitable that we quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunication, condemnation, and execution. Is this not what all of the apostles endured for the sake of Christ, as servants of Christ? We cannot escape it either, brothers and sisters. Now perhaps in this country, what you might feel is just hatred, from the world and a little persecution maybe. But we all ought to feel something. That's what happens when you stand opposed to to the world and its value system and and what it esteems highly. Because this world is going to want us to to walk in the darkness of its deeds, isn't it? It's going to want us to participate in, in filthy joking and in foul speaking. Right? And in the wicked deeds of the flesh. And when we don't appease the world and walk in the ways that they have called us to, right, they are going to hate us. And they are going to persecute us. Because we seek not the approval of men, but of God, who calls us to do what? He says, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, practice these things for There you find the approval of God in them. That's what pleases God. Now there is one other area, brothers and sisters, that I want to highlight in which ministers today are people pleasers. That is similar but different from what we see the Judaizers doing. Because what the Judaizers are doing is this. They are applying the law where the gospel ought to be applied. Okay? They're applying the law where the gospel ought to be applied. 
But one thing that is, is very prevalent in churches today, in evangelical churches, is this. Is that we oftentimes see the gospel applied where the law ought to be applied, don't we? This is what I mean by that. If people are impenitent and they need to be convicted of their guiltiness, the minister is supposed to stand up before the people and apply the law before he applies the gospel. But too often today, because ministers want to be people pleasers, they won't speak about sin. They won't speak about the law. They won't speak about your need to repent of your sin, to be convicted by your sin, to daily hit your knees for your sin, and to confess it before Almighty God. They want easy believism. Just say, I believe. Just say you believe. Pray this prayer in order that they can boast about the conversion numbers in their churches. But this is why it's so important to understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. To be able to distinguish ourselves between law and gospel, but also be able to discern when to use both law and gospel depending on who your audience is. In the case with Paul, right? Paul is dealing with justification. And so when Paul speaks, he leaves the law out and applies the gospel. Right? When you speak about justification, the, the law is to be excluded in order that grace may stand alone as the sole cause of the sinner's righteousness before God. But brothers and sisters, even when we think about seeking the approval of man or the approval of God, we must neither believe that, that by what we do, we earn God's approval. I think a lot of times as Christians, we, we think that's the case, that what we do, we earn God's approval, but we need to see that God's approval is a matter of God's grace. You are only approved before God. He only approves of your works because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Right? Christ's works and not your works are the reason that you have approval before Almighty God. And so we must never forget that in salvation we are but beggars before God. There's nothing in us deserving of grace. It is all owing to the mercy of Almighty God. And when we were brought to that saving knowledge, we came to understand that, didn't we? But here's the thing. So too did the saints in Galatia. At least that's what it seemed like. But I want us then to see as we start to draw to a close here this morning, the danger of what happens when we do not constantly sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And when we sit under people pleasers instead. But I want us to see this. And it's really a reality we see throughout all of Scripture, isn't it? Think about this. Moses was given to the Israelites to proclaim the message God has given to them, didn't he? But when Moses leaves the Israelites and goes to the top of the mountain to speak to God, and the people are no longer under the instruction of Moses, what becomes of them? They build for themselves a a golden calf and worship it. This is the exact same thing we see going on here in Galatia. As soon as Paul leaves, they start to depart 
what it is that they were taught. And so we need to see the importance, the importance, brothers and sisters, of always weekly being amongst the saints in church under the Word, being instructed by Christ. I know that for many of us, maybe we've been Christians for a long time, you think you're strong in the faith. And some of us are stronger than others. But look at what happens. Right? When we do not sit under the Word, when we're left to ourselves. So, so be not proud, brothers and sisters, but rather be in, in constant prayer that, that God would keep us by His grace. That He would not let us depart from Christ or depart from His Word. We ought to also acknowledge God's grace always. Recognize His Word is sufficient and, and cry out that the Holy Spirit would daily and constantly be with us and be influencing our, our lives. And then finally, always remind ourselves that it is Christ who has released us from the yoke of the law. And so we are to let no man put us back underneath it. Right? Knowing that because of what Christ has done, we are not under bondage, but liberty. And now we are to live in thanksgiving for that liberty that God has so graciously given to us. Acknowledging that the Gospel of God's grace is what alone has brought to our hearts joy and gladness and forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ and eternal life. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Your Word makes our joy full. Uh, we thank You for that, Lord, that uh, through the proclamation of the Gospel, we no longer have to live in fear, for You tell us love casts out all fear. That, Lord, we now can, can live with quieted consciences before the Lord, certain and assured of our right standing before God, because it is not based upon our works and merits, but upon the works and merits of Christ. And so, O oh Christ, we thank You for what You have done. We thank You for what You have accomplished. We thank You, O Holy Spirit, for applying the benefits of redemption to us. And we pray that You would continue to, to teach us to be good discerners of God's Word. That we would not walk in error, but walk in the Spirit and in truth. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.